You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, the Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we discussed the action of August 1702. That was almost the first major fleet battle in the War of the Spanish Succession. Almost the first major fleet battle in ten years. It turned out, though, to be kind of a disappointing flop. The French commander, Admiral Ducasse, refused to stand and fight the English Admiral Benbow. Now, your hyper-patriotic, nationalistic types will tend to tell you that it's because the French are yellow-bellied cowards, but that's not what was happening here. The reason Ducasse refused to fight Benbow was because Benbow's fleet failed to join the line of battle. There would have been no honor in blowing Admiral Benbow out of the water. It wasn't a fair fight. Nonetheless, Benbow and one other ship in his fleet continued to offer battle to the French, and eventually the flagship turned around, shot Benbow's ship with a volley of chain shot, and tore Admiral John Benbow's right leg off. That's when we get the tale of John Benbow continuing to give orders from the quarterdeck despite his condition. But of course, eventually the battle's over. Admiral Ducasse then sent Admiral Benbow a letter, which read, quote, Sir, I had hopes on Monday last to have supped in your cabin, but it pleased God to order it otherwise. I am thankful for it. As for those cowardly captains who deserted you, Hang them up. 
for by God they deserve it. Yours, Dukas. What he's saying here is that he had hoped to defeat John Benbow in open battle. Of course, he doesn't know that Benbow has been gravely wounded. And then he's saying, you know, hey, hang those guys, because when we meet again, I want you on your best form. And that's exactly what John Benbow planned to do. The fleet returned to Port Royal, but before the proceedings could begin, they had to wait around for a while. John Benbow was in no condition to oversee the proceedings of several courts martial. His leg had been blown off. He was in a tremendous amount of pain, and probably on a steady diet of opium and rum. So instead, they had to wait for Rear Admiral Whetstone to return from his cruise near Hispaniola. When he returned, Whetstone was shocked to learn that all of these captains were to be tried for insubordination, for failing to follow orders. Nonetheless, he prepared the proceedings. Now, those captains who were to be tried composed and signed a joint statement in their defense. The statement read, quote, At a consultation held on board HMS Breda, August 24, 1702, off of Cartagena on the main continent of America, it is the opinion of us whose names are under-mentioned, first, of the great want of men in number, quality, and the weakness of those they have, second, the general want of ammunition of most sorts, third, each ship's masts, yards, sails, rigging, and guns being all in great measure disabled. Fourth, the winds are small and variable, that the ships cannot be governed by any strength each ship has. Fifth, having experienced the enemy's force in six days' battle following, the squadron consisting of five men of war and a fire ship under the command of Monsieur Ducasse, their equipage consisting in guns from sixty to eighty, and having a great number of seamen and soldiers on board for the service of Spain. For which reasons above mentioned, we think it not fit to engage the enemy at this time, but to keep them company this night, and observe their motion, and, if a fairer opportunity shall happen, of wind and weather, once more to try our strength with them. Kirkby, Vincent, Constable, Fogg, Wade, Hudson. End quote. Now, Hudson was going to die before the trial could actually begin, and Captain Walton of the Ruby had done his duty and fought the French, so he wasn't going to be tried. The rest of the captains, though, were going to stand trial, and they made a strong defense. I mean, the fleet was at about half strength in terms of manpower. Their ships, after months at sea, were in pretty poor condition. They were low on supplies, including shot and powder, but most of all, and this is big, the French fleet was fresh. They were in excellent shape, and their guns and men and ships and everything way outnumbered what the English could offer. To engage the French under those circumstances would have been unbelievably stupid. No one in their right mind should have ordered an attack like that. But that's exactly what Benbow did. When you really start to break things down, it 
begins to look kind of like Ben Bow was gripped by a kind of a vainglorious madness here. Considering his actions during the chase, you know, when it's just him and the ruby up against the entire French fleet and he keeps going for it, well, one begins to wonder just a bit if maybe Admiral Benbow had gone mad. Or maybe, and keep this in mind, maybe the story we have of John Benbow's last days isn't exactly accurate. Whatever the case, John Benbow was the admiral, and his word was literally law. You know, there's a discussion to be had about when it's morally right to disobey orders, and when it's legally right to disobey orders. But in 1700, in England, the answer to that question was, unless it was treason you were being ordered to do, never. You always obey orders. And all but one of the captains under Admiral Benbow's command had failed to do so. However, there were some extenuating circumstances taken into account. For example, Captains Vincent and Fogg were those two captains who had been just unable to keep up with the fleet. You know, they tried, but wound up falling about five leagues behind the rest of the ships. When Benbow ordered them to open up full sail, they did, but they were unable to catch the wind. And testimony from other men on board determined that the captains really had done their best to catch up with the fleet. They just couldn't do it. So those two were found innocent. Captains Kirkby, Wade, and Constable, though, had no evidence extenuating their case. They were all three found guilty of disobeying orders, of insubordination. And as a result, all three were cashiered. That is to say, they were removed from command and held under guard. Now, that was the finding of both Rear Admiral Whetstone and Vice Admiral John Benbow, but theirs was not to be the final word on the matter. All of the captains were sent ahead to England with a full account of what had happened in the action of August 1702, and Queen Anne was to make her final decision, although I believe in the end she actually demurred that to her husband, the Lord High Admiral. Upon review of the evidence, they actually found Captain Constable not guilty. He had not deliberately disobeyed orders and been insubordinate. It appeared that he had just been too drunk to do his job. So he was to be punished, but not for the same crime that Captains Kirkby and Wade would be. The verdict on those two as guilty of insubordination was confirmed. On 16 April 1703, those two captains were taken out to the Thames, marched on board the HMS Bristol, stood before the mast, blindfolded, and shot. With that last bit of business taken care of, Queen Anne wrote a letter to Vice Admiral John Benbow. It was a letter commending him for his very good work against the French, and informing him that he was going to be promoted once again, this time to Admiral. I'm fairly certain that would make him the highest-ranked commoner in England at the time. However, John Benbow would not be able to accept this promotion. 
According to Rear Admiral Whetstone, just a few days earlier, Admiral John Benbow had succumbed to, quote, the wound of his leg which he received in battle with Monsieur Ducasse, it never being set to perfection, which malady being aggravated by the discontent of his mind threw him into a sort of melancholy, which ended his life as before. End quote. And again, it says here that it was the discontent of his mind that ended his life, and it really begins to feel like there was something seriously wrong with John Benbow, mentally, here at the end of his life. And then this movement, this kind of grassroots movement, started in London to have the names of Captains Kirkby and Wade restored, that they had been wrongly convicted and wrongly executed, and most of the evidence that that movement came up with was the deteriorating mental state of Admiral John Benbow. But admitting that John Benbow had perhaps gone mad was not good for national security or national morale. That grassroots effort was quickly quashed. And that, as they say, is that. That's the story of Admiral Benbow. And initially, I had intended to stop that story here, and segue into a conversation about the royal decision to empower privateers in the West Indies. And of course, that's something we're going to have to talk about at length in the future, but in all my reading about John Benbow, I've come to realize that there's more to his story than first meets the eye. So I'd like to hold off on that. Instead, I'd like to kind of take a little tangent for the rest of today's episode and explore this other avenue of John Benbow, these other versions of his story and what they might mean. Fair warning, from here on out, we're going to be pretty deep in the weeds. This is episode 308, Brother Tar. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. The word strike has a long, interesting, and complicated history. It's one of those kind of weird words that probably goes way back to the Proto-Indo-European language. The original word probably just meant simply to touch something. It comes down to us, to English, through two different avenues, though. The first avenue was through Latin and French, 
And that word is kind of the basis of the word stroke. And it means just that, to rub or caress softly. There's another variation, also through the Latin striga, which meant more to, uh, to smooth something, to flatten it, or to plow a furrow. It's similar to stroke, but it's got kind of a destructive connotation. And then the second route through which we get the word is through the Old German, which is much more similar to what we think of when we think of a strike. You know, it's to hit something, to give it a good blow, a strike. But of course, the word strike has many more meanings today. You know, you can strike out in baseball, or you can strike out on a voyage, a journey, or adventure. What I'm thinking of today is the meaning that the word strike attained in 1768. That means a work stoppage, you know, a strike. Now, by 1768, these sorts of uh, labor actions were fairly common in the English-speaking world. You would see fairly often a mine or a factory or even an entire industry that just collectively stops working. The work stoppage in 1768 was tied up with a bunch of other issues. There was a recent imprisonment of a radical left-wing journalist named John Wilkes, then there were, of course, the policies that England had towards the American colonies that had a lot of people very upset. And then, of course, there was the fact that King George III was crazy. Add to that people upset about the kinds of things that labor is always upset about. Low wages, no food, no breaks, long, long hours. And you've got a lot of very angry people in a city like London. On the 10th of May, 1768, 15,000 workers in London from a variety of industries, including tanners and hatters and sawyers, that's people who worked at sawmills, husbandsmen, people who worked at stables, a bunch of women who worked as weavers, fishermen, as well as quite a few sailors, prepared to march on St. George's Field in London. In preparation for this march, all of those sailors went to their ships and struck the sails, meaning they furled the sails, usually the top gallant, which were necessary for operating any ship at the time. That crowd of 15,000 agitated workers marched on St. George's Field, chanting slogans like, Damn the government, and No justice, no king as well as demanding all of the things they wanted, higher wages and the release of John Wilkes. Which is, you know, pretty serious stuff. There were going to be marches very much like this in Paris in about 20 years that are going to end up with the king getting his head chopped off. So I don't, you know, I don't support it, but I understand it when a bunch of soldiers in the English army fired on those 15,000 protesters. Killed a couple hundred of them and then rolled out the cannon to tell them, hey, if you continue on this way, we're going to open fire with everything we've got. Broke up the protest march pretty quickly. And it kind of broke the momentum of what was very nearly a general strike there in London. But the sailors, with their having struck the sails, still had quite a bit of leverage. So, a couple of days later, they planned a march of their own. 
The events of that protest march would be recorded by Captain James Cook, you know, Captain Cook. He wrote, quote, The sailors also followed the example of the landsmen and went in a body of many thousands, with drums beating and colors flying, to St. James Palace. That's where the king lived, by the way. They presented a petition to the king, praying a relief of grievances and an increase of wages. They were addressed by two gentlemen who told them that their petition could not be immediately answered, but that it would be considered and answered in due time, whereupon the Tars gave three cheers. A short time afterward, they boarded several outward-bound ships and forcibly carried away several of their crews, under pretense of not suffering ships to sail, until the seamen's wages were increased. End quote. There are two things I'd like to note here. That bit at the end about boarding those outward-bound ships, those sailors who were preparing to sail were, you know, scabs. They were brought in to break the strike, to do the work that wasn't being done by the sailors who were on strike. All of which are terms that are being born right here, right now. But of course, the strikers weren't going to let that happen, so they forcibly carried the scabs off. Second, Cook writes that the Tars gave three cheers, so what's a Tar? It's a word I don't use very much here on the show, but really I should. A capital T Tar is just slang for a sailor, usually a British sailor. And it comes from probably where you're thinking it comes from. You know, pine tar was essential to the operation of any sailing craft during the Age of Sail. Pine tar was used to seal the hull of a ship. It was used to swab the deck and, most importantly, to coat the ropes and sails and protect them from water damage. A not insignificant part of any regular sailor's day was given over to coating the ship in a layer of tar. Hot, smelly, sticky tar. It was not a fun job. But, of course, not every sailor was subjected to such unpleasant menial labor. If you were one of the men on board who, you know, would don your coat to dine with the captain, you wouldn't have gone anywhere near a bucket of tar. Those sorts of men were not capital T tars. Officers were gentlemen, often aristocratic, and if not, at least they were usually from a well-to-do middle-class family. In the parlance of our times, officers were white-collar. A tar, on the other hand, was very much blue-collar. And they really, really did not like those white-collar officers. And that's what makes John Benbow unique. John Benbow was... I suppose you might call him a blue-collar officer. You know, he was a ship's master and then a captain and then an admiral, but he'd been born in a tannery, probably in a neighborhood like Wapping, to a father who died young and a mother who struggled to provide for him. That's the kind of story that the people can really sink their teeth into. I mean, you can imagine a ton of future pirates, like a a teenaged Charles Vane or a young Mary Reed listening to the tales of this blue-collar captain. And when they talked about Benbow, they didn't call him Admiral Benbow, 
They called him Brother Tar. It's a way of saying that he's one of us. But it wasn't just his lower-class roots. You know, if he had transcended that and become a true upper-classman, then they wouldn't have cared where he came from. But John Benbow, Brother Tar, treated regular sailors better than almost anyone else in the Navy. And don't get any ideas here. This is still the Royal Navy. He's not some sort of working-class hero, socialist icon. He's still an admiral in the Navy. But he made these simple, practical suggestions. Nothing world-shattering, just, you know, some good ideas. But because the Navy was such a horror show in 1700, they, they were shocking. You know, when he goes to the Admiralty Board and says, Hey, I've got an idea. Why don't we try to see why everybody is getting sick? The Admiralty was, what, what, what? But of course, you know, it was a good idea. Or Binbo might suggest something like, Hey guys, why don't we try to figure out a way to keep the food and water on board fresh? You know, so the men don't keep dying. And the men of the Admiralty would shake their jowls and furrow their brow, but, of course, the results spoke for themselves. So Binbo would say, hey, why don't we try to work the men in, you know, shifts? That way they don't fall down from exhaustion. And when we need them to be fresh and ready to fight, they're fresh and ready to fight. And, of course, the men of the Admiralty were a bit confused, because the way they'd always done things was to beat the men to death if they didn't work until they fell down from exhaustion. But of course, Ben Bo's way turned out to be a bit more efficient. So, they adopted it. And again, none of this is really radical, but it was being injected into a system, a, a culture, that genuinely did not see these lower-class people as people. Ben Bo, who, you know, had grown up as one of them, treated them as people and wouldn't you know it, things got better. For that, John Benbow gets remembered as Brother Tar. So, why have I been spending all this time talking about strikes and labor unrest that aren't going to happen for about another 70 years after John Benbow dies? Well, it's because there's a couple of very distinct versions of John Benbow that I've come across. The first is Brother Tar, one of us, a practical guy, a commoner who rose himself up to become an admiral. The other, the second version of John Benbow, doesn't come around until a few decades after his death. By the latter half of the 1700s, labor unrest, especially in the sailing community, was becoming a real problem. Now, you know, from a certain point of view, you could look at the entire pirate problem of the early 1700s as, you know, some pretty serious labor unrest, but there's somehow a difference between taking over a small island in the Bahamas and 15,000 people marching on the palace. And, you know, that's just in London. In the 1770s, you could also look to a city like Paris or Boston, find plenty of other unrest going on, all of it distinctly anti-government and anti-monarchy. And it's around this time, the middle 1770s, that you begin to hear this ballad being sung all around the British Empire. The ballad was entitled Brother Tar, or alternatively, The Brave Benbow. 
Let's take a brief listen to a couple of verses from this ballad. This version was recorded by a Shropshire group of vocalists called the Men From Off. Brave Benbo lost a leg by chain shot. By chain shot. Brave Benbo lost a leg by chain shot. Down on his stumpy bed. Fight on me, English lads. Fight on me, English lads. Tis our lot. Tis our lot. While the surgeon dressed his wound, Benbo cried, Benbo cried. While the surgeon dressed his wound, Benbo cried. Let a cradle now in haste on the quarter deck be placed, so the enemy I may face till I die, till I die. Now, most of that tends to line up with the version of John Benbo that we talked about here on the show. The brave English admiral who, while in a fight with the French, gets his leg blown off and says, and here I'm quoting, Fight on, me English lads, tis our lot. And then he goes on, Let my cradle, now in haste, on the quarterdeck be placed, that my enemies I may face till I'm dead. Now, just in case it really hasn't sunk in, I'm going to repeat something here. One minute... John Benbow's standing there, giving orders, doing the admiral thing, and then, all of a sudden, half of one of his legs is gone. I mean, not gone, exactly. It's not like he lost it. He knows where it is. It's over there. It's just not attached to him anymore. And I understand that for a ballad, there's a need to dramatize real events, but this doesn't seem like something I can believe. I mean, put yourself in his place. One minute, there you are, standing tall, standing strong, and the next minute, half your leg is over there. I have a hard time imagining someone in that situation saying, Fight on, me English lads, tis our lot, tis our lot. Really, all I can imagine someone in that situation saying is, My leg, oh God, my leg, my leg was blown off, the pain, dear Lord, the pain. And there's a, a painting depicting this heroic moment where his cradle now is placed on the quarterdeck. I'll put it up along with this episode, or you can find it on uh, Wikipedia on the John Benbow page. The caption to this heroic painting reads, Admiral Benbow courageously commanding his men to fight after his leg was shattered to pieces. And the painting, Benbow's lying there on his cradle, looks kind of like a daybed, and he's wearing this white, curly wig. And he's holding his sword, which, of course he's holding his sword. He's on the quarterdeck of his own ship, surrounded by his own men, no enemies in sight, but he's in a battle, so you hold your sword out. But his other hand is held up, kind of like he intends to declaim. He's lying on these pristine, pearly white sheets, while who I presume is the surgeon wraps his leg in what looks to be more sheets. It's a really odd painting, but the thing that sticks out to me is that there's no blood. The only red used in this painting is to depict the brilliant lining of Admiral Benbow's coat. His leg was, and I quote, shattered to pieces, and there's no blood. Because that's what an Englishman does. 
is. He buries his pain down deep, so hard that he actually holds the blood inside. Then he draws his sword for no good reason that I can see, and declaims like a Roman orator. The painting, and the song, and the version of Admiral Benbow, that courageously stood in the face of French opposition, it's a lie. It's propaganda. It's the powers that be in the English Empire in the 1700s selling an image of what an Englishman is supposed to be, how you should be. It reminds me of that, you know how sometimes you'll see a a post, a, a tweet or something from a conservative politician or like a, you know, some 50-year-old white guy with wraparound sunglasses and a picture in his truck and the post is saying something about how it's such a shame that rage against the machine went woke. I mean, they used to rock so hard and now they're all political. What's that about? Or when Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump played Born in the USA at their campaign rallies. Or when Donald Trump used Fortunate Son at his campaign rallies. Or when Donald Trump used Rockin' in the Free World at his campaign rallies. Or when a right-wing think tank like the Heritage Foundation wants to convince you, and this is a quote, that Martin Luther King Jr. wanted to change hearts, not laws. And they try to convince you that Martin Luther King Jr. is actually a conservative icon. What they're doing is co-opting the past to try to change the present and therefore the future. And maybe I'm giving these kind of people too much credit, but I can't believe that they actually believe any of these things. They're just trying to make you believe it. It's like when people try to tell you that Hitler was a socialist or Stalin was a fascist. If you believe that, it's because people who know that it's not true lied to you. I'm getting way off topic here, but these are all examples of bald-faced lies in an attempt to co-opt the past to control the future. People do this all the time, everywhere. That's what they were doing with Binbo. You know, it's the 1770s, England is at war with France, and they're trying to remind you, the common sailor, that this is what Brother Tar would do. He would get his leg blown off and continue to fight, because that's our lot. And look, y'all, I don't have a good dismount this week. I don't have a point to all of this. I'm not building to anything here. It's just, I guess I've just dragged you along on my journey. But it annoyed me to spend all this time reading about this guy, trying to tell you about this English hero, and having to wonder the whole time, like, what's wrong with him? Is he crazy? And then realizing, no, he's not crazy. I've just been telling you about supply-side Jesus. I've been feeding you 300-year-old propaganda to try to convince you to die to defeat France. So we're going to leave it there this week. Next time, we're going to join up with William Dampier as he begins his Roebuck expedition. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or family. Without all of you, I couldn't do this. Thank you. 
The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Age of Napoleon, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. You can always check them out at brillig.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight